Hi, this is Richard Swart with Information Security and Media Group, publishers of BankInfoSecurity.com and CUInfoSecurity.com. Today we'll be speaking with Bruce Sussman, a senior manager at Crow Chiswick, who has almost 20 years' experience in the banking, information security, and audit community. Good afternoon, Bruce. Good afternoon. How are you? Very good. I'd like to sort of focus today on uh, PCI data security standard compliance issues, and I was wondering if you could start by telling our listeners what are the requirements and key factors that a financial institution needs to know to achieve and maintain compliance with the PCI DSS standard? Well, first of all, an institution really needs to understand what their role is within the payment system. And by that, I mean, would, would they fall within the classifications that the networks use for either a, a service provider, a gateway, a merchant? Uh, institutions really uh, need to refer to the definitions that are maintained by the card network. So, for example, if you go out to uh, Visa's site, using them as an example, they have very specific requirements for uh, and definitions that a financial institution has to know. But mostly, institutions really need to focus on where is their card data located, who holds it if it's not that institution, in other words, who is the service provider, what is the data that's maintained, is it encrypted? Uh, what is their transaction volume? Uh, and uh, what are the particular payment applications that are being used, as well as the particular uh, hardware and equipment? Once all that information is in hand, then a financial institution would be well equipped to go down the list of requirements that, uh, that are maintained by the Payment Card Security uh, Consortium, known as PCI Co. Uh, those Requirements are variously known as the digital dozen, and they basically relate to requirements for protecting card data when it's stored, when it's processed, or transmitted. So there is a sequence to the process, but it really starts with understanding your role in the payment system, what data you're holding, what your transaction is, and then how that maps to the particular requirements. Sometimes institutions find that in particular they have no role in touching that in the in authorizing a transaction or in settling it, and other times the uh, analysis is much more complicated. So it really depends upon what role you play within the payment system. What role would a typical bank or credit union play? They're a transaction provider. Not necessarily. Most institutions are not big enough to do their own transaction processing. And here we're really talking about one of the three frameworks that PCI has. Uh, we're focusing on the data security standard, or DSS. So most institutions, if they're issuing cards and if they have ATMs, they may not bear the brunt of verifying, compliant, uh, verifying compliance. Uh, rather, if they outsource the task, they're going to have to make sure that their outsourcers, those organizations that, that do authorize or settle the transactions, are compliant. On the other hand, if an institution uh, services merchants, provides authorization or settlement for any other institutions, then that's generally going to trigger um, much more uh, granular requirements for validating compliance. So all institutions have to be compliant in the sense that they protect data when it's stored, processed, or transmission, uh, transmitted. But most banks, unless they are in a, in a position of authorizing transactions or processing for others, are, are not going to have the same type of obligations as, let's say, a merchant bank or a data service provider. 
Well, can you tell us more about what is actually required at that granular level to achieve compliance? And also, what are some of the key challenges to achieving PCI compliance that you've seen in your clients? Well, again, well, referring back to the to the digital dozen, there are some very basic requirements. Uh, firstly, that that card data, and by this we define as uh, the card numbers that are used with debit and credit, as well as the data that's used to authenticate the transactions, what's also called the CVV or the CVC or the CID, if it's American Express, that those, that data um, not be retained after authorization. So institutions really need to take a look at their processing practices and their applications to find out if they are retaining card data that is uh, not necessary. And why would you say that is? Well, that's because if an institution is breached, the fraudsters, the bad guys, are going to be going after that data so that they can put it on uh, white plastic or use it to make fraudulent transactions. So the first step really is, is, is getting rid of data that you don't need. The second step is if you do have a valid reason to retain card data and the data that's used to authorize a transaction, you have to find out where it is. You have to find out how to protect it through access controls very restrictively, and you have to find out how to structure your data network in a way that is not conducive to uh, hackers uh, in monitoring or invading the network. And some of the challenges in particular with, with associated with are finding all that data, uh, and in particular encrypting the data once you've found it, and also logging access. Many institutions find it a challenge to lo to log all access to the card data in in a way that is um, manageable. Meaning, you don't want to produce so much data that you that it's not possible to pick out those particular events that are anomalous. In other words, indicative of a hacker or some unauthorized person trying to access the card data. So some of the challenges again are logging, encryption and finding all of the card data where it's located. Great information. What about those informations that are PCI compliant? What does that actually do in terms of overall level of information security and safety? How much impact does it have on their security posture? Uh, well, you know, as with any other audit, you know, PCI is only a snapshot at any given time, so it's no guarantee. But on the other hand, there is not a single PCI compliant entity that I'm aware of that has ever suffered a breach. So while it's not an insurance policy, it's a pretty comprehensive, well thought out standard and if you follow it, you're significantly reducing, although not guaranteeing, against you know, the possibility of losing card data, data perhaps that you don't, that, that, that you don't own that you've been entrusted with. One of the major concerns of our listeners is data leakage. What are some best practices to protect against that? Well, data leakage can occur in many forms. Remember, data is maintained in paper form and it's maintained electronically. But in all cases, it, it's really handled by people. So the first step is training your staff uh, against social engineering, pure trickery. Uh, you know, the, the fraudsters realize that organizations have been hardening their enterprise through encryption, through access controls, so they try to trick people. They try to trick staff into giving up information that they shouldn't, and they do this by, you know, pretending to be service personnel, pretending to be technicians, um, social engineering. So you really need to train your staff in 
information security awareness. It's critical. And also train staff in, um, at least make them aware of, social engineering techniques. Indeed, it's a PCI requirement to have that sort of training. And it's also a PCI requirement to do what they call a penetration test. Penetration test is where the hackers, actually you know, consultants playing the role of hackers, will attempt to invade the organization using any method that they can, social engineering or accessing restricted areas, to attempt to gain access to data, data that's kept in paper form or data that's kept on a PC, perhaps that is unsecured. So really, best practices really will relate not only to the technical side, not only to encryption and logical access controls, but also to training staff in, in information security techniques and awareness and protecting against social engineering and also physical security. We need to mention that. Uh, all of us have heard about dumpster diving, where the bad guys will look for data that's thrown out in the garbage. And indeed, it's a PCI requirement that any particular organization that has card data in paper form have a process in place to get rid of it, to shred it securely, indeed to reduce it down to white ash using cross-shredding so that the dumpster divers are defeated. Well, you keep mentioning fraudsters. What is the relationship between PCI compliance and an effective fraud prevention program? Well, I think they go hand in hand. I mean, the, the essence of PCI, the why it was born, was to protect card data from theft, from, un, from unauthorized use. So every institution needs to anticipate how data can be stolen, just as if one would, would perform a risk assessment or even a, or build a contingency plan. So in planning for PCI, it's essential to anticipate how an organization could be breached and then map that possibility, that vulnerability, to a couple of things, to preventive controls, such as encryption and access controls, to detective controls, such as lo logging and intrusion detection systems, and also to reaction controls, uh, to an incident response plan, to a particular uh, sequence of steps that will guide the institution in a couple of things, how to recognize a that a fraud may have been occurred, how to recognize that data has been compromised, how to react, how to preserve the evidence, whom to notify, and under what condition. Um, so if you look at the link between PCI and fraud, uh, it's very, very strong. And indeed, there's a further link between PCI fraud and the breach legislation that is hitting uh, the state houses. You know, there's, all, there's legislation in at least 35 states that require breach notification. Other states such as California, Minnesota, and Texas have gone even further by requiring institutions to, uh, to report fraud and then to take particular steps to um, protect card data and indeed forbidding the storage of card data when it's no longer needed. So there's a very strong linkage between PCI and anti-fraud management and now uh, compliance with state law. Excellent insight. Well, what lessons can we learn from the recent TJX data breach? TJX uh, was a well is a well-meaning organization that unfortunately got tripped up under the complexity of, of PCI requirements. They did a lot of things right. But one of the lessons that can be learned really is that 
all aspects of the organization, including those that, re that relate to test servers and, and quality assurance practices and wireless networks really need to be compliant. From everything that I've understood from the forensic reports, the organization did a lot of things right, but they, as far as we can tell, they were victimized because one server, one server was found by the bad guys, and this particular server was a quality assurance server, and an unknowing contractor placed unencrypted data on that server. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson is that uh, everything that is said about wireless security is true. We learn, you know, through, through reading the, the reports, that the hackers broke in initially by exploiting an insecure protocol for wireless communication. Everyone in the security com community had said, well, this particular algorithm called WEP was insecure, and the hackers proved that. So really do pay attention to vulnerabilities that are published. They really do mean something. And the third, the third PCI re requirement for a, an incident reaction plan is really, really come, come home with the TJX case. Although TJX did many things right, for example, the CEO came out and recorded a video expressing contrition, uh, unfortunately, they weren't prepared for the media reaction. They weren't prepared in every single aspect of preserving evidence and then in managing their incident response. And in particular, um, they were not prepared to offer credit monitoring insurance, which really, although it's not a PCI requirement, is really something that's expected. So the lessons really of the TJX incident are make sure you secure data everywhere, even if it's quality assurance or test. Make sure that your wireless, wireless networks are truly protected, not using uh, weak encryption. And thirdly, make sure that you have a very good incident response plan. And although it's not related to P uh, PCI in particular, make sure that you understand the laws on data breach and disclosure and are ready to offer credit monitoring insurance to anyone who feels, uh, who feels at risk because it's a lot cheaper to do that than, than to uh, deal with the legal uh, fallout from all of the lawsuits that have been filed by consumer groups and states' attorney generals. Great information. Well, you have an extensive experience helping organizations recover from incidents, and I was wondering if you could talk about two things. One is how are threats and, and how is IT security itself changing? And two is based on those changes, what advice do you give your clients in terms of how best to recover from incidents when things occur? Well, if you look at the the nature of fraud, the ways in which hackers attack information, it's pretty clear that the days of the script kiddies are over. And by that, by script kiddies, I mean the casual hackers, those folks who. Uh, really uh, were not professional in their, uh, in their aspirations. If you look at the way most frauds are, are successfully pe perpetrated, they're done by some incredibly talented individuals with knowledge of encryption networks who are well-organized and well-funded. And consequently, institutions need tools, data protection tools, anti-fraud tools that are commensurate with the risk. Or put it this way, it's not just enough to be content that you've per built a 10-foot wall, you know, representing your security, your, your, your moat, because the bad guys are always enterprising and are ready to build a 12-foot ladder. In practical terms, what that means is, is that organizations need to have 
very good fraud protection tools that are based on experience and even on neural networks. The, the particular fraud tools that are out there today that are best suited to stopping card fraud and intrusion of networks are all neural in nature. And that holds true whether you're seeking to protect a data network against intrusion or whether you're looking for anomalies in uh, authorized transactions or card activity. The fraudsters are so sophisticated that they actually build up inventories of card data that they've stolen and they wait periods of time to use them and then they use different inventories of stolen cards together so that it's very, very difficult to manually identify uh, a fraud and tie it to a particular incident. And that's where technology comes into place because the neural networks have the ability to aggregate data and to discern patterns that are not humanly possible. Whereas before, institutions may have relied on manual techniques and some good old due diligence. That's still important. You really have to have neural networks in protecting your data network and in your card data. It's absolutely essential. And the the corollary also is that the fraudsters really know who's not using those tools, and then they'll target your institution. That's also been proven in some of the fraud cases which, of which I've become aware. Well, great information, and that's an interesting insight. I've not heard a lot about neural networks being used in this way. Sounds like we need to spend some more time on that topic. Well, thank you for your time today, Bruce. Thank you very much. I appreciate the chance to chat with you. Well, thank you for listening to another podcast with Information Security and Media Group. For other information or to listen to other podcasts, you can go to www.bankinfosecurity.com or www.cuinfosecurity.com.